Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Sunday, April 30th, 2023. I'm going to work backwards in time as we remember the events that occurred on this day. It was on this day in 1975 that the South Vietnamese capital of Saigon fell to the communist forces in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. It was on this day in 1973 that three members of Richard Nixon's cabinet, John Dean, John Ehrlichman, and H.R. Haldeman, resigned under fire from the president's cabinet amid the Watergate investigations. It was on this day in 1945 that Adolf Hitler committed suicide as World War II was coming to an end and the Allied forces, particularly those of the Soviet Union, were barreling down on his capital city of Berlin in Germany. It was on this day in 1939 that the New York World's Fair officially opened, and in 1803, the Louisiana Purchase was negotiated in which the United States agreed to pay $11,250,000 to France for the Louisiana Territory. Wonder how much that real estate would be worth today although back then that amount was quite a lot. And of course, perhaps most importantly, it was on this day in 1789 that George Washington was formally inaugurated as the first president of the United States, and he was inaugurated in Federal Hall in New York City, which became the nation's first capital before it eventually settled in Washington, D.C. And of course, we honor and remember the example and the life of George Washington as the father of our country and one of the great founding fathers of the United States. And we continue to pray for the prosperity of our country, even in the midst of the social and political turmoil that we see in our nation today, many of whom would say is because of the leadership that the country currently has. But either way, we hope that the country will make it through and that it will eventually return to the prosperity and the spirit under which our nation was founded and that we will truly be a beacon of freedom and liberty around the world. But today, the church celebrates, or at least observes, Good Shepherd Sunday. And I thought on this day in which we have a mass prayer for vocations around the world to the priesthood and the religious life, I would share with you, as a change of pace, my homily that I offer today in celebrating Mass on this Good Shepherd Sunday. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it enlightening. Thank you for listening. Back in 2009, I scandalized a certain contingency here in the Archdiocese of San Francisco because I submitted a picture to the Catholic San Francisco, and it was published. It was a picture of me standing over a boar at the end of a hunt that I went on with some parishioners of the parish I was at in Novato. And, of course, some people were scandalized. How, how could a priest go hunting? Whereupon those who confronted me, I simply said, well, a boar, it's a pig, it's the unclean beast, it must be okay. But on that occasion, it was at a ranch in Mendocino. And of course, it ended late at night. We were heading back to the ranch. There were no lights, except the lights of the Jeeps that we were driving. And even there, you couldn't turn them on or off. You turn on the Jeep, the lights go on. And it was a ranch that kept cattle and sheep. And it was divided up by various fences and gates. And as we were coming back about 10 o'clock at night, It was, of course, very dark. We had to pause at one of the gates because one of the flocks of sheep was being transferred from one pasture of the ranch to another. 
And after all the sheep went through, there was still, naturally, one little lamb that was spooked by the headlights and wouldn't go through the gate, kept hanging back against the fence on the wrong side. And what happened afterwards, I think, is a wonderful metaphor for the role of the shepherd and even a shepherd insofar as one is a priest in a parish, as shepherding of a parish. And it wasn't so much the shepherd, but rather the sheepdog, not your traditional English sheepdog, but one of those very white dogs that could be mistaken for one of the sheep, comes up to the lamb and nose to nose is beckoning the sheep as it slowly walks backwards. And the sheep, nose to nose, is following the lamb toward the gate. Until, of course, it got spooked again and went right back to where it was before. (laughs) And then you saw, with infinite patience, the sheepdog coming closer again and nose to nose beckoning the lamb slowly. You can see just the concentration on the dog's face in the lights of the, of the jeeps, slowly backing as the beckons the lamb closer and closer to the gate before the lamb gets spooked again by the headlights and goes back to where it was before. Of course, this goes on about three or four times. The cuteness had long since lost in this scene. And we're looking at our watch, it's getting rather late, but we couldn't go forward. We had to wait for that lamb to get through. So after the fourth or fifth try, this very, very patient sheepdog at one point just walked around to the other side of the lamb and then barked fiercely at the lamb, whereupon it ran away from him, bleating desperately to get away and went through the gate where it needed to be. What a great metaphor for being a pastor in a parish. (laughs) Sometimes you gotta make the sheep go where they need to go. But every year, on the fourth Sunday of Easter, we celebrate unofficially Good Shepherd Sunday. It's not an official feast day like Easter or Trinity Sunday or Pentecost. But every year on this uh, fourth Sunday of Easter, throughout the three-year cycle, the theme of the readings, and especially the gospel, is that of the shepherd, or something having to do with the shepherd. Today, Jesus talks about being the sheep gate. Our psalm was, the Lord is my shepherd. And so this has come to be popularly known as Good Shepherd Sunday, and as such, we're always encouraged to talk about the need for vocations and the need to encourage people to be shepherds of the people in the parishes, because, of course, we have seen over these last couple of decades a real dearth of vocations to the priesthood and the religious life. And we're encouraged to talk about that in our homilies and, of course, the important role of praying and encouraging vocations uh, in the parishes. There was a time... uh, uh, Within most of your lifetime, it was a little before mine, in the 60s and the 70s, you did see an influx of men into the seminaries and a great many men becoming priests during the 60s and 70s. I'm sure the Vietnam War had absolutely nothing to do with that, but it was, of course, that generation was the generation in which we saw the large number of men leaving the priesthood eventually, and, of course, the scandals that we had to deal with about 20 years ago had its increase in that generation itself. But as we see today, we do see such a dearth of vocations that we are seeing the combination of religious orders and their provinces coming together in one province because they don't have the numbers. Seminaries even closing. The college seminary that I went to in Camarillo, California, has closed. The college seminary here for the Archdiocese of San Francisco has closed. And there's a combination of many of the other theological seminaries because they just don't have the numbers to keep them open. And it's always a task of the people in any parish to pray for vocations. And I hope everyone here at some time or another prays for an increase in vocations to the priesthood and the religious life. 
Well, people often ask me, you know, when did you know for sure that God was calling you to the priesthood? Now, hopefully you know by now, I am not one for really, you know, gooey, sentimental stories of inspiration. So when people ask me, when did you know for sure God was calling you to the priesthood? I answer them, when I was on my knees in front of the archbishop and his hands were on my head during the ordination. That was the point I became a priest and I knew there was no turning back. Before that, I was interested, probably from second grade, but in second grade, you pretty much want to be everything. And uh, in high school, I really started thinking about it, but always open to whatever the possibilities are. It grew on me over time, and then, of course, I knew for sure on the day of my ordination. At that point, there's no turning back. But what was it that drew me to the priesthood? Let me hold off on that for a minute, and I'll address that uh, a little later. But back to the question of praying for vocations. Hopefully, we all pray for vocations. And we ask God to send those labors into the harvest, shepherds who can lead the flock in the name of Jesus as priests and, of course, as religious brothers and sisters teaching in our schools. But the question is, of course, how have we prayed for vocations? And when we really ponder the manner in which we have prayed, I begin to wonder if perhaps God has not been answering our prayers all along. To illustrate that, Many of us, I hope, are familiar with St. Augustine, one of the great theologians, had strayed away from the faith before his reconversion and became one of the great theologians uh, of church, the church's history. Well, if you've ever read his confessions, I recommend it, but even if you haven't, it's a well-known story that he himself admits, or if you will, confesses in his confessions, that in his years away from the church, he had a regular prayer he would offer to God. And the prayer goes like this, Lord, Grant me chastity, but not yet. And that's true. It's in his confessions. That was his prayer. Grant me chastity, but not yet. I begin to wonder at times if we have taken Augustine's prayer for chastity and turned it into our prayer for vocations, perhaps without even knowing it. And when we look at the disposition of how we pray for vocations, I wonder if perhaps the prayers have been, Lord, grant us more priests to serve in our parishes, but not my child. Lord, give us more religious brothers and sisters to teach in our schools, but not my son or daughter. Lord, give us more vocations to the priesthood and religious life but not me. We're going on now the third generation, perhaps, of people in the church who have perhaps prayed with that disposition. And are we surprised then that we have such a dearth of vocations in our parishes and in our schools? Has God perhaps been answering our prayers all along when an entire generation of people are praying that someone else's child answer the call, or that someone else other than me answer that call. Maybe God has been answering our prayers all along, and that is what ultimately drove me to the priesthood. I got tired of praying for someone else to enter the priesthood. I've been praying ever since first grade. Sister Frances Borgia, my first grade teacher, pray for vocations. But then I began to ask myself, what about me? Why not me? Because how good is it if we're praying for vocations, but aren't willing to consider it ourselves or encourage it among your own children? I won't say our children. I have no children. 
And perhaps if we really reflect, is that the disposition with which we have prayed for vocations? Early on in my uh, seminary career, when I was in my first assignment, we had the evaluation team evaluating our school from the WASC team. And among the team that evalu- of evaluators was a member of the Dominican Sisters of Mission San Jose. Actually, my mother belonged to that community for about five or six years before she left. And boy, am I glad. And they say in that community that she's the only sister they've ever had who left and sent a replacement. Actually, my dad's sister, my mom's sister-in-law, after my mom left the convent, my Aunt Donna joined the sisters. My mother was her contact with the sisters. And this year on Pentecost, she'll be celebrating her 50th anniversary. So I'll be looking forward to celebrating that down in Mission San Jose. But one of the sisters of this evaluation team was from that community. And in one of the meetings with the parents over the evaluation to get feedback about the school, one of the parents was bemoaning the fact that we used to have sisters in this school. How come we don't have sisters anymore? Where are the sisters? Why don't we have sisters in our schools? And the sister very simply said, well, send us your daughters. Whereupon, how did the parents react? They react like most Catholics do when they hear something challenging. They got mad. And I got to really admire the brilliance of their response. It's not our job to provide the sisters. Early on in my seminary career, when I was a seminarian in Southern California, after my first year in the seminary, I trained a young man. It's just one of the group of altar servers that I trained. He eventually grew up to enter the Dominican community who have their priory here in Oakland at St. Albert's, and he did his novitiate at St. Dominic's Parish in San Francisco. By that time, I was a priest of San Francisco. I know the Dominicans well, and I visited him in his novitiate, and I was present for all his milestone events, his first profession, his final profession, his diaconate, which was done at St. Albert's Priory by the Bishop of Oakland, Salvatore Codiglione. And the following year, I went to his ordination to the priesthood at St. Dominic's Parish in San Francisco, done by the Archbishop of San Francisco, Salvatore Codiglione, who had switched over during that period in which he was a deacon. But I remember his first profession, his parents were there and his mother was weeping, but they were not tears of joy. She was not happy that he was thinking of entering the Dominican priesthood. He was the only son. By the time of his ordination to the priesthood, she had come around, fortunately, and was very, very happy, very proud of him, as was his dad and his two sisters and the rest of his family, and, of course, the parish and yours truly, who knew him as an altar server. But every now and again, we do see parents with that disposition. Are they open to their children entering into the religious life or the priesthood? Do they manifest that in the attitudes toward vocations to the priesthood and the religious life? I knew one gentleman with me in the seminary in L.A. He's now a priest, but he was an only child. And his parents were dead set against his becoming a priest. Why? Because this poor guy, their only child, was supposed to provide them acres and acres of grandchildren. But so adamant were they that they didn't even go to his ordination. From my parish, there was a young lady, family, sister, her sister was a classmate of my own sister's, very Catholic family, very active in the parish. 
But their oldest daughter was interested in entering the convent and was in the process of looking at different communities from the society devoted to the Sacred Heart, a more modern community, another modern community of Mother Teresa's uh, missionaries of charity, among others. I believe she even looked into the Dominican Sisters of Mission San Jose, where she went to high school in in, uh, uh, San Gabriel Mission, is run by those sisters. But her parents were against her becoming a sister, and they actually went to their pastor, my pastor, the priest I first went to to talk about becoming a priest. They went to him and they told him. They were very concerned. Their daughter shouldn't be a sister. Could he talk to her? What should they do? And I remember his response as he told the story to my family, who became good friends of his. He said, well, you're not going to like what I have to say, but you need to butt out. This is her vocation. She's discerning it. You need to be encouraging. Well, unfortunately, they didn't. And in the end, she did not become a sister. She eventually got married. And now for the last 20 years, she's been divorced. Ineligible now to become a sister. When I was in my second assignment, St. Cecilia is here in San Francisco. I was at a basketball game. And I was sitting a few rows back on the, on the benches, the bleachers, and in front of me were a couple of mothers in the, in the midst of cheering, were chatting among themselves, and I overheard one of them say, my son, fifth grader, my son came home the other day and said he might be interested in becoming a priest. Have you ever heard anything so stupid? Whereupon another mother said, well, he won't if you're going to be paying for college. Whereupon a third one kind of... And there I was. Nice sentiment. And I've seen other such examples as that. Another mother, grandmother from my first assignment, uh, had said to me, very proud of her grandchildren, she said, Father, I have nine grandchildren and they're all professionals. Of course, I wanted to ask a professional what? Maybe they were professional hitmen, I don't know. But I said, oh, that's, that's wonderful. Are any of them priests? To which her response was, and I quote, oh, heavens no. Obviously, people who are positively disposed toward vocations, but what is their own disposition to their own children? And has not their prayer for vocations always been an adaptation of St. Augustine's prayer for chastity? Lord, grant us more vocations, but not my child, not my son, not me. And so perhaps it's worth looking at how we come to encourage and pray for vocations in the midst of this shortage of priests and religious that we have. And I'm not saying we should, again, succumb to the usual namby-pamby band-aid solutions that we always love to hear being brought up. We should just let priests get married. We should just let women be ordained. All I do need to do is point you in the direction of the Church of England, which started doing both in the early 90s. And I don't know if it was the cause, but it certainly coincided with a downward trend of that denomination, the Anglicans and Episcopalians, in which they are now so far off the rails that there's a whole population of the Anglican and Episcopalian communities, lay people, priests, and bishops, who are returning to the Catholic Church. Pope Benedict XVI developed constitutions for Anglican Catholic ordinariates, of which the one in the United States and Canada, the first bishop of their kind, was actually ordained a priest with me right here in San Francisco in 2001, Bishop Stephen Lopes. Their charism and ministry is outreach to former Anglicans and Episcopalians who are so discouraged with the direction of their church, again, so far off the rails theologically, morally, and otherwise, that they're coming back to the Catholic faith. 
So we need to encourage vocations as God has the church right now. Not as we would have the church if we were God. And we do hear people say, well, I'll encourage it when this development happens or when that development happens. And again, how do we go about when it comes to encouraging vocations? Is it an acceptable alternative in your mind for your children and your grandchildren? Do you express that in the attitudes and dispositions you show toward the priests in the parish? If you are aware that perhaps there is someone among you, among your children, grandchildren, or the children in this parish, who may have that potential to be priests, do you encourage them and encourage their parents to encourage them? Or if we have someone we know might be thinking of the priesthood, when he or she, if it's the religious life, in the end decides to take their life in a different direction, do we quietly breathe a sigh of relief? Because that's more grandchildren. I once had a, a set of grandparents tell me, no, they're not going to be priests. I have a right to grandchildren. I love how the way we throw, we have rights to all these different things in this day and age. But let us look at how we encourage, or without even knowing it, discourage vocations of the priesthood. And perhaps the first step we can take in the increase in vocations of the priesthood and religious life is to stop praying for vocations. Hasn't done us much good over the last 30 years. But rather, and most importantly, encourage those vocations. Not among someone else, but among your own families, your own children, your grandchildren, the children we see among us here in the parish. And if we see that potential, then quietly, modestly offer that encouragement. Don't be overwhelming. I once knew a grandmother. She not only knew how many children were going to be priests, or if her grandchildren were going to be priests, but which ones were going to enter which particular orders, and this one's going to enter this order from Kentucky, and if he wants me to keep him in the will, he will not enter the Jesuits. Whereupon I told her, I said, that's the best way to become the grandmother of an ex-priest. But we gently and realistically and solidly encourage vocations within your own ranks. Because as a nation, we really have not done very well at encouraging vocations. We often complain when we have foreign-born priests celebrating Mass and serving as pastors and associates in the parishes. We don't understand their accents as well, but how many of us have encouraged our American-born, clear-speaking children to become priests? We have rectories that have multiple rooms and suites and residences for priests, and in fact, in parishes, it used to be that the reason we have a multiplicity of Masses on Sunday was because we had a multiplicity of priests, and each one would have their own particular Mass that they would say. Now you have two priests, if we're lucky, doing the work of what used to be five or six priests, and woe betide any of them if they even suggest changing the schedule on Sunday. But are we grateful for the priests from foreign countries who've given up their home to save the church and maintain the church in this country? And we've always had that. At one time, it was the Irish priests. Very strong Irish presence in the parishes. We couldn't understand what they were saying either. But today, they come from Africa, Latin America, Vietnam, the Philippines. And we should express our gratitude to them because they are saving the church that we have been unable to maintain by providing our own vocations. But most importantly, as we continue praying for vocations, let's remember to take that first step and not make Augustine's prayer for chastity our prayer for vocations and encourage vocations within our own ranks 
within your own families and within your own parish. And then, perhaps then, we will hear God answer a different prayer that we offer. And we will see an increase of vocations to the priesthood and religious life. And we offer those prayers on this Good Shepherd Sunday. Thank you.